Welcome to a conversation with John Philpin. Each week, John cuts through the noise and fills your ears with interviews, stories, and most importantly, clarity. Clarity in our ever-changing and shifting world to put people first. Over to you, John. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever and whenever you are on this planet of ours. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever and whenever you are. This is Stuart, John Philpin's co-host in the People's First Network, and I'm very pleased to introduce Sheila to you today. has one of the longest titles, I think, I'm aware of in (laughs) modern history. She is head of data, blockchain, and digital assets for the World Economic Forum, and in that capacity, she has received a lot of attention recently. So some of you may recognize her name simply from your LinkedIn streams. I've known Sheila for several years when she was corporate counsel at TechSoup, as a matter of fact. And Sheila was the only one in the entire management team who answered my opening question correctly. It was a sort of trick question to convince everybody that they needed to more organizational awareness. And she goes, oh, I know the answer to that. I looked it up last night. <laughs> it was terrific. <laughs> Sounds so, like me. <laughs> so for our members who may have heard the words blockchain, mm-hmm. are aware it's a modern technology, aware that it has financial implications, and that's it. Could you give somebody who doesn't know anything but is kind of interested a quick overview of what's intended to be and what it's currently doing, maybe one of the great example of how it's being used today, that sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. So I think, you know, it's less important as a matter to understand what a blockchain is because that can get very technical very quickly. And I personally find it fascinating. It's easier to understand than you might imagine. I think it's more important to understand what a blockchain does. And so the best way to uh, articulate that is probably to give you just an example, like an anecdote. Great. So let's Great. say, yeah, let's say Stuart, you and I, you know, we were out, we went and had a glass of wine. And I forgot my wallet. And so, you know, I said, hey, Stuart, can you cover me? And I'll pay you back later. So when it came time to pay you back later, I'd pull out my mobile device and I would use whatever app you told me was your preference, you know, Venmo, Square, whatever. And I would send you that amount of money, right? And what happens then when that transact, when I do that is my bank talks to our payment provider, talks to uh, your bank, and we ensure that an amount of money is debited from my account and that same amount of money is credited to your account, right? And there are these three intermediaries, we call them, that are involved in that transaction being complete. We have faith that those banks are incentivized to record the transaction accurately. And we know that if you ever came to me and said, hey, you never paid me, you know, I could point to my bank record and say, oh, yes, I did. There's a record that that happened, right? Now, imagine if I didn't have access to a bank account and neither did you, or we were in a place where, you know, we didn't trust these institutions for whatever number of reasons, let's just say. What a blockchain enables us to do is engage in that transaction directly, what's called a peer-to-peer fashion, without any intermediaries. And the reason we can do that because is because what a blockchain provides is an alternative system of trust and verification. So instead of relying on our banks, banking system, let's call it, we rely on a network of computers. And so imagine it this way. Okay, imagine if at the time that I handed you uh, the amount of money that I owed you, we have you know n number of computers, right? Like however many they are, it's, it's thousands, thousands of computers that were recording that transaction simultaneously. 
And if it's easier, imagine this as people, imagine a room full of people that the, the entire audience now takes out their notebook and writes down. Sheila gave Stewart, you know, wine number of dollars, right? Right. In order for you to then come back to me and claim I didn't pay you, you'd basically have to buy off those people, right? You'd have to convince them to change their record and show that I never paid you and I still owe you the money. Think of it that way, right? Okay. And specifically for us to kind of get to an agreement what happened, you'd have to convince 51% of those people to change their record pretty much simultaneously. And okay? is there a even a process for that? So that's what's called a 51% attack. And it is the one oh, vulnerability of a blockchain. Okay. So that's kind of an illustration of what that would look like. Now, in order for the transaction to be changed, 51% of the computers would have mm -hmm. to agree through a mechanism, right? That the transaction was recorded incorrectly. I never actually paid you, you know, and you're still owed the money, right? Now, remember, these computers are anonymous to each other. They are all over the world, et cetera, right? right. So the, the probability that you could ever convince, you know, or get to a place where you could hack all 51% of these computers right at the same time, it's just very, very unlikely. And as you add more computers to the mix, it becomes more and more unlikely. So certainly if we had, you know, if it was just my family recording the transaction, for example, or your family for that matter, right, it wouldn't be that hard for you to go in there and convince them to change the record. But once the intermediaries there are unknown to us, they're invisible to us, they don't know you, they don't know me, they don't even know what the transaction's about, they don't know the amount of the transaction necessarily, they don't really know what's going so on there don't know who you are. They don't know who you are at the time that they're recording the transaction. Got now, it. that gets just, that leads to a different point, which is interesting. I'm sure everyone listening has heard of Bitcoin. That's kind mm -hmm. of the, it's the first, you know, and therefore the most famous of all the blockchain protocols that exist. And so I think it's important to distinguish the technology, which is the blockchain, Bitcoin, there is something called the Bitcoin blockchain, in Bitcoin itself, which is a coin. It is a digital currency. Correct. It's used primarily as a store of value right now. People right. analogize it to gold. It's a flawed analogy. We'll go with it because people understand it pretty easily. Right. And people are largely using it for investments. Okay. But that's, that is different. It's important to understand that the uses of something like Bitcoin and digital currency are different from the use of a blockchain. A blockchain does have other uses, you know, that you can imagine other situations where disintermediation is of interest. Yes. And in those cases, the use of a blockchain with or without a coin or token that sits on top of it, again, I'm using very simplistic terms here. I understand. Um, could be interesting, right? Could be interesting. Right. That's an important distinction, I think, to draw. So from that definition, see if I'm correct here, the risk of being individually being the victim of a hack and having something of mine, particularly my identity, but perhaps my finances suddenly disappear because someone logged into a single server and grabbed all this information is much more difficult because it's such a disintermediated system. It is decent. There is no honeypot, as we call right. it, right? There's right. no place that's storing. Well, okay, I should be very clear. So in the pure in the purest sense of cryptocurrency, there is no such place. Everyone has their own individual, what's called private cryptographic key. They store that however they store it. You know, hopefully they store it somewhere very secure. It's often written down on a piece of paper and stored in a safe, or it's on a hard drive that's not connected to the internet, whatever it might be, right? So it's very, very secure. Now, 
the reality is that most people are actually using what's called a custodial wallet. That is a company that stores your keys for you. And provides a user that interface. That provides correct. a user, right. correct, a user interface, right? And so that introduces this level of, oh, okay, well, now I've got this other party that is mediating, right, my engagement with the blockchain. Now, so the security on that company becomes very important. Right. Yeah. So whether it's a Coinbase or any one of the vendors who provide access to this functionality without the complications. That's right. Um, it's almost, correct me if I'm wrong, but it reminds me of what happened. Oh gosh, I'm aging myself. But when Apple introduced its icon-driven desktop as opposed to command-line-driven, it was much easier for people to use that very complicated system because they didn't have to understand these arguments that they'd have to string together in the command line. They could just click on mail and it would take them where they wanted to go. And at the time, there was a debate about whether we were removing the person from, is there a, are we distancing them from the technology or are we just inviting them in? And I remember lots of discussions about that. But in a sense, we found our way to make easier what had been a more complicated series of tasks. The rebellion then, at least in the company where I was, was that those magicians who did our command line statements for us, they would walk over and go, oh, no, 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 you need a dash F. Or, oh, no, 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 you can't do it without a closed parenthesis, Stuart. I didn't know these things then. They suddenly were out of the loop that the UI had removed them from our needing them. So instead of a person coming and interacting with the computer to do the job we needed to do, mm -hmm. we could now do it ourselves. And mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. sounds as if there's almost a similar role being played by those vendors, because now there are a lot of people, my son even speculated <laughs> Bitcoin not too long ago, you know, he's only 25. And I went, Oh, Max, you know, what are you doing? Dad, it was only $5. And I made 12. Okay. But he was curious. And he went through one of they provide a wallet for him, he bought some, he waited a while, he sold some, not unlike someone would do with the stock market. Is there that similar? Has it provided an invitation for more people to be engaged with the system because there are these vendors who are making it easier to do a transaction with Bitcoin? Certainly. I mean, I think that people who don't have the think they don't have, I should say, the technical capacity or the just the, the attention or whatever it is, you know, to kind of do something as serious as, as hosting a hardware wallet, you know, it has provided an increased access point. And, you know, as always, that convenience has a cost and many people are more than willing yes. to, to take that cost. I think the risk is relatively low. That's my personal opinion. You know, others disagree. And this is there's violence around these opinions right, right. Um, to clarify, you know. But yeah, I certainly think that the easier you make an on-ramp to something, you know, the, the more people are going to be willing to experiment and the more familiar it feels, the more people are going to be willing to experiment with it or try it out. You know, yeah. I think that the more the bigger question, though, Stuart, really is less about how people are engaging with crypto and more how is this new form of currency, you know, crypto specifically, how is it empowering people to think about the financial system? And so, you know, I don't know that if you pushed on this, I, I can't claim the causality here. But, you know, the whole GameStop thing that happened, right? I feel like there is this understanding that you can engage in financial transactions in new ways 
is. Bitcoin is one of them. There are many yes. others. And I think that's led people to have a little bit more confidence to start questioning some of these systems that always seemed very opaque and complicated and ask the financial like, systems, you mean? That's right. The financial system and to ask questions about like, why is it that, you know, I'm restricted from trading in this fashion or why is it that I just ask questions that I think it's time for us to ask, you yes. know? So yes. to me, that broader systemic awareness is something and empowerment of, of individuals is something I, I actually find very powerful. That makes a lot of sense. And it also makes sense that in that introductory experimentation, whether it's with GameStop or whatever new system that they're exercising their muscle in, there's almost a class conflict. There are these group mm -hmm. of penny share investors up against the big mass mutual or state of Wisconsin who are buying large amounts of stock and selling large amounts of stock. And we theoretically, it's a single transaction, but the political weight of a mass mutual investing in a certain direction is much different than if Stewart invests. And so the laws tend to favor the big. Mm -hmm. So I saw an article recently, and I do believe it was, you know, you either commented on it or, or promoted it, where there is a benefit, therefore, in some of the new cryptocurrencies for disadvantaged countries, for communities that have not up until this point been able to participate. So that is certainly the hope. Right now, I should I should be clear that the path to financial inclusion is not obvious. It's not entirely obvious how you get people. There's a lot of discussion in this space, a lot of touting about, oh, we're going to help the unbanked, the unbanked, blah, blah, blah. You know, there are a lot of systemic reasons why people who are unbanked are unbanked. Yes. Right. Digital divide issues, infrastructure problems. There's all kinds of other threshold issues. Uh, there's also just the fact of not having any savings whatsoever that could be banked because everything is just you know cash in and out, right? Not so, a great uh, place to put your goats. If that's your, no. I mean, this one. You don't, you don't, there's nothing extra. There's nothing right. left right. in the bank, right? So right. they're just like larger. And so I always get kind of, I always kind of roll my eyes a bit when I hear, you know, so many crypto evangelists talking about, oh, this is going to solve the problems of all the world's poor. And I'm like, what are you? That makes no sense. What are you talking about? So you know, I think that. I'm in this space for a variety of reasons. Number one, I think that, you know, it's healthy to question institutions. I think it's healthy to question them only when you actually have alternatives, you know, otherwise it's just, it's just being, I think, petulant and, and somewhat, somewhat silly. Um, so I think it, thinking, thinking about, you know, how some of our antiquated regulation and regulatory and legal rules don't really serve the way people interact and operate in society today. I think this is just true of technology in general. It's creating different ways to be a citizen, to engage in society. And I personally feel that there ought to be some regulation uh, or, or, you know, mediation of the ways that we do that. And that is not necessarily a bad thing. I'm not a full on, you know, right. So all these things I think are important. Um, but what I think is where I think we've seen tremendous innovation is in places that, that have the opportunity cost of experimentation is relatively low because their mm -hmm. systems are not so robust, right? So there has been leapfrogging that's happened in places like Nigeria. There's tons of Bitcoin wallet holders there. At one point in time, Korea, South Korea had the largest number of digital wallet holders of any country in the world, right? Crypto wallet holders. Now, that makes sense to me because I know from my time in the enterprise, whatever company I was working for, there was always challenge with sales, new products, would be much more readily adopted by new customers who do not have the old system already installed. So if you've already invested in how to do it a certain way and you have a whole series of customizations sitting mm -hmm. on top of the old, mm -hmm. you're far less likely to jump to the new. That's whereas right. Whereas somebody that doesn't have, isn't encumbered 
by those that's, that's investments. Right. So that's right. They don't think about a lot of people don't think about legacy system. You know, it's not just a vendor lock-in problem, which is how it's usually posited. It's that like sometimes what you have is actually working fine. It's kind of it's what I always encourage people to focus on with any technical you know deployment is what is the problem you're trying to solve. And so the reason I think that there's a lot of accusation in you know the earlier years of the U.S. like paying no attention, blah blah. blah. Untrue. The U.S. was paying a lot of attention to the space. It just hadn't necessarily found a use case that made sense, right? We have Correct. fairly low-cost, efficient payments in this country. They don't serve everyone, fact, right? But I am a person who remains unconvinced that the current modes of engagement with crypto that we have are going to actually solve the problems that plague, you know, members of my city here in San Francisco, right? Populations live on the streets, yes. others, right? That, so, makes, so that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Whereas other countries that really did not have this super low cost efficient payment infrastructure, this it made a lot of sense to experiment in these in, with this technology because it was providing the next generation, if you will, right? Skipping over the sort of current tense, present tense, this next generation system um, that could catapult, you know, those citizens into a new economy. So from the very beginning of my time at the forum, I always tried to point out the innovation happening in frontier economies and how it was to be expected. Like there was incentive there. The use cases that were identified made more sense in those environments than they did in giant economies like, you know, the European Union or, or U.S. or Canada. So to follow that point, because I think it's a really interesting challenge for countries, established countries, first world countries who are as burdened by their own bureaucracies as they are protected by them. And I used to be, a, I, would, I had a meeting with friends at the OMB back when I was doing some work in Washington. And I said, I referred to something about how difficult it was for startups to engage with the federal government, you know, because decisions take so long and deployments take so long. And of course they pointed me to the program that allows startups to walk right in the door for experimental and beta projects, which we didn't mm -hmm. know about. But mm -hmm. besides those experiments, he said, remember, there's a reason why we want that kind mm -hmm. of innovation to slow down, because there's great risk to a number of things if we make a mistake because we went headlong into something without it maturing as we needed it to. So if it takes me six weeks to send affirmation that your company has been accepted in the program, that's six weeks that's built into how we govern. Yeah. And that, yes, it's slow. And it does prevent impulsive behavior, which is the benefit I hadn't thought about before. And in the, last, in the last four years, yeah. I've suddenly really appreciated it. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we talk a lot about redundancy. We build into systems as a stopgap measure, right? As a security mm -hmm. measure. And I think there's some redundancy built into bureaucratic processes deliberately, you know, and that can be very frustrating. I think it's frustrating for those who have to engage with it directly in their jobs yeah. and those who kind of see it from the outside. Um, but, you know, you have to kind of consider what the alternative is of being the market maker, if you will, right? Like it's one thing for a very small economy to be super innovative and experiment and pivot quickly when you have a small population, you know, it's another thing for the U.S. dollar to be doing that. It's Correct. Either not the same thing. And so- Correct. 
people have, again, people accuse the U.S. of being, you know, oh, behind the ball, late to the game. And I was like, look, I think that the U.S. was paying a lot more attention behind the scenes than people give them credit for. I know that for a fact. Right. You know, there are a lot of people at the Fed, for example, who are deeply knowledgeable about these topics and had been really questioning, like, what is, where is the technological maturity? Talking to the developers, the core developers, like really getting in there in the weeds in terms of what was happening here, checking on security issues, like all these kinds of things. And so Jay Powell came out, uh, I guess, yesterday. Just recently. Right. He finally yeah, mentioned yeah, the word said, digital dollar. Right. That's right. And so he said, you know, we're 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 prioritizing this and going big. And that's because there's been a determination that, you know, there's a readiness there and that there the technology is sufficiently mature for this to be a worthwhile investment. And right. you know, I I think that could it could debatably have happened, you know six months ago or six months hence, and I'd be comfortable anywhere in that window, you know, or even a little further earlier out. Um, because again, it's all about like what problems are, you know, you're trying to solve, like what, yes. what is the point of this deployment? And if you're not focusing on this micro efficiency realization in, in your payment system, which again, I'm not sneezing at that. I think it's significant. It's a lot of money, right? But if that's not your primary focus and goal, particularly during a time like a pandemic, I mean, who's to fault you for that, you know? So, Correct. so it all Correct. comes down every time to what is it you are trying to accomplish? Where are you trying to get to? And is this the thing that's going to get you there now? Or is this the thing that's going to get you there after you've done some other work first? Like at what point do you bring in, right? This, the technology, the crypto, like these aspects to it. You know, it's music to my ears. You know, I was a CIO three in three different companies. Mm -hmm. And so often one of our staff or myself in a meeting the president would come in having read an article in an airline magazine that said XYZ product, you know, saved my company. And he would come down and say, go buy this product because he wanted to be cool or he thought it might one day solve a problem. But when we asked him, what is the problem? you're Don't give me a solution. Tell me your problem and I'll do the research. And it may be the solution that you ask for but it may not be. And I don't want to waste your money going and buying something that's going to sit on a shelf because it doesn't solve anybody's problems. Mm -hmm. And for people who don't think that way, it's a very hard shift for them to make. You know, it's sort of like saying, I want to change X. Well, what is the problem with X? I just want Y. So let's slow down and have the conversation about what it is that you're trying to accomplish before you spin your wheels and our wheels for six months of investigation on something that turned out to be of little or no significance to us. There were some executives who appreciated the caution, and there were just as many executives that would be very upset at being questioned that way. Mm -hmm. It's a really interesting shift in the conversation, regardless of the technology that's being suggested. Yeah. Uh, so how did you get there from TechSoup? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I, I certainly have had a uh, varied career path for sure, right? Because I don't even know if you knew before all of that, I started off on Wall Street as a lawyer. Uh, I knew that and I knew about NGO yeah. Source. Yeah. And then I long, circuitous path. I came out to the Valley. I worked with them with a, a philanthropy law firm focusing on representing, you know, very rich tech billionaires who wanted to give away their money. And so I uh, worked with that client set a while and also a bunch of just progressive nonprofits, a lot of political you know, work as well political nonprofits. And then, yeah, there was this clear and acute need for streamlining in grant making diligence. And that was where NGO Source came from. So right. I moved over to TechSoup to uh, design, lead and launch NGO Source, which is a SaaS product that streamlines diligence around international grant making. Mm -hmm. And then had my first child and I was asked to come back as the first general counsel there, which is when you and I met. 
Right. And then from there, you know, it was just an executive at TechSoup and ran a bunch of different departments there and got into blockchain in part because of GDPR. So oh, that really makes concerned. sense. Yeah. So I actually didn't get into, so, so Bitcoin was a totally like when my husband first mentioned Bitcoin to me, I was like, why would we invest in criminal money? Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Like, right. are you the classic myth, you right? right? Yeah, I was like, are you crazy? You know, are you crazy? So I didn't even connect Bitcoin and blockchain for probably like a, I, mean, I think at this point, an embarrassingly long time, but I just, Bitcoin was this thing over there. I'd never heard of blockchain, like many people. Mm-hmm. And then um, what happened was GDPR was coming and our CTO and I were like, wow, well, what are we going to do about that? You know, how- So remind to- everybody in the audience the GDPR yeah, thing, GDPR particularly because it, it's law in Europe, it's correct? It's law in Europe. Well, it's, it affects everyone. You right. know, so it's law in Europe or if you engage with Europe, which is basically everyone. So it's basically a, it's a law that came down. Uh, I don't even know what the year was uh, while I was TechSoup. So probably 20, I don't want to guess. I don't want to guess. So yeah, five years ago, five years ago or so, yeah. five, yeah. six years ago. Yeah. And uh, it basically had requirements around, you know, how you can use data, how you can store data, what you have to do when you translate it, what kind of notice you have to give. So all the time that all your pop-ups started happening around like your different notices and all mm-hmm. this kind of stuff. That was a result of GDPR. That was a comp- some company's response to GDPR. But when GDPR was in the making, right, it was there was a lot of fanfare about this thing before it actually rolled out as a final rule. And so there was a lot of speculation, like what's it going to mean and how long will you have to comply with it? And how do smaller organizations like the NGO that I worked for, social enterprise I worked for, how are we going to comply with this? We worked in 200 countries. We were very prominent in Europe. We had an office in Warsaw, an office in London. And there you would know, be no that, way for you to store their data within in the boundaries of their country. That was going to be very, very expensive, right? right? Like having servers in every single country was going to be super expensive, like which we could take the cost on our ways. What was our strategy going to be? Like, how are we going to do this, right? right? So during that exploration, which had me up a lot at night um, (laughs) about what to do, uh, I had dinner with a friend who had left the State Department to go work uh, on blockchain issues. And he said to me, you got to think about, what about blockchain? Like, what about, have you thought about using a blockchain to help the data because the way that it's stored in a distributed manner so the jurisdictional issues might actually go away. And so oh, that's like, interesting. Blockchain, right? So then I actually went back and read the Satoshi white, the Bitcoin blockchain white paper, which is written by Satoshi Nakamoto, a person that we don't know who that person or, or who this, this, For is, those who are right? listening, the person who created these technologies for public use is yet to be identified. Correct. Now, I personally think it's a group of people, but leaving that aside, I think it's more like a band, right? But anyhow, so no one knows you. So I read the paper and I thought there's, this is fascinating. And so then as has happened to so many people, I just was up at night instead of worrying about GDPR, I was imagining scenarios where a blockchain would prove useful, where this disintermediation concept, the removal of these centralized intermediaries would actually be valuable. And it was all over the place. I was like, oh God, imagine if like OJ's glove had been geotagged and you know tagged, and then like you could track it from place to place, and then you'd know for sure if that was the glove or wasn't the glove. You know, what all kinds of ideas, all kinds of ideas. So this is very, very common when you first get into this space, by the way. It's like it's called there's like a name for it that I'm forgetting right now, but it's kind of like you go down the rabbit hole and you have this kind of like you evangelize yourself, right? Right, right. So but, but it's also the way it. you get seduced by a new system. That's exactly yeah. right. Right. You just fall in love with it. And so so I became obsessed is the only accurate word with it and started just like talking to people about it and become one of those very annoying people. You know, like, have you read this thing? What about this? What about that? And there were other, you know, let's call them blockchain junkies in San Francisco. There were a lot of us. And so we used to get together and have these conversations and whatnot at meetups and this and that. 
And I got asked to start speaking on this. And so I did that. And then I came on the radar of the World Economic Forum where I work now. And they Mm -hmm. were opening an office in San Francisco in 2017. And they asked me to come and run, found basically the blockchain team here. So I did. And now I run blockchain team, digital assets team and data team. And I'm also the deputy head of the San Francisco office, which is called the Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution and focuses on all these different technologies, AI and IoT and all kinds of things. Boy, that so, just takes my breath yeah. away, Taylor. I'll tell you. There's a book. <laughs> and I'm having fun. I'm having yeah, fun. I'll bet you are. So what just came to mind was two interviews before I was interviewing Lee Fisher, who's the dean of the Cleveland Marshall Law School. And I asked him, whether the interest in the law had spiked recently after having read an article. And he said, I want to correct you on one thing. He said something really interesting. He said, I tell all of my students this, and it's important that you understand this, that we teach the law, we practice justice, and there's a difference. And you need to understand the difference in order to properly position yourself as a lawyer. And I thought that's I've never heard the rule of law and our ever-reaching ambition for justice to be bound in such a simple way. And since you're, I think I saw in your bio, on the board of the Equal Justice Society, am I wrong? I am. That's right. So within you somewhere, there is a connection between those two things. But could you, between the law, which you studied, versus the practice of justice. Mm -hmm. So I guess, is your path from law school to where you are today. Does that make sense to you? It may seem chaotic to someone else, but do you see a progression of I think the common thread in what I've done is two things, right? So number one, and I'll say I'll own this first and foremost, I think intellectually, I follow my curiosity. So mm-hmm. there's something I'm deeply curious about and I can't shake it. I eventually wind up working in that space. It just happened. I don't know why. It just what happened. Probably because, you know, like with many people, you talk, if you're curious about something, you talk about it all the time, you ask lots of questions. And the next thing you know, it's it, it, these experiences just kind of tend to find you. So that's, that's kind of one thing. But also is a passion for social justice. I mean, I think it's just the most critically, I, I think civil rights issues are the most critically important issues of our time, quite frankly. And, you know, again, opinions vary on that a lot. You know, I think that people understand that people who, you know, well, you know, there are critics who think that the only thing that matters right now is climate change. And I certainly, I certainly respect that point of view. It's just not where I focused my attention, right? So uh, for me, that's been a constant thread throughout my entire professional and academic career. So, you know, as an undergrad, I was an economist, but I was development economist and I focused on microeconomic theory and decision-making and heads of households uh, and who was actually making decisions at a consumer level in developing countries, you know, using uh, resources that were not cash. So mm-hmm. things like allocation of healthcare and things like this. So that was my research. Then in law school, I took critical race theory courses. I was very focused on discrimination and bias and things like this, these kinds of questions, uh, both philosophically and, and in terms of the law. And then, you know, fast forward through my time in New York, I was really interested in investigating systems, like the financial system. Like, how does this work? Why is it so opaque? Why is it so hard to understand what mm-hmm. happens in these systems? Like, what are these financial products that don't seem to make any sense? And who is benefiting from them and who is not? It was just a, right. an intellectual exercise, right? And then coming out here, you know, how are all these people, how the philanthropic industrial complex, as I call it, like how are people that make all this money and then they give it back, give it away? Like, how are they influencing, you know, our public infrastructure? Because it's consciously or unconsciously. That's right. It is profound, right? Public health in particular. It's just absolutely education. It's just it's just really, really massive investments that some of these people are able to make 
What are their philosophical bases for doing so? What are the checks and balances on the system? Where's the bureaucracy to our earlier point, right? That is correct. That correct. Is some of that, some of that investment and some of those decisions. So that interested me a lot. And, you know, blockchain in my mind is the culmination of all of those things. It just is, it is an opportunity for a brand new governance system. And that's what I find most interesting. So to this day, even though I publicly comment all the time about crypto and Bitcoin and this and that, you know, I frankly find the investment side of it much less interesting. Hmm. Well, it's interesting, of course. I find it much less rewarding to engage on that side of it than on the governance side of it. How do you govern something that has no ownership? And that is the fundamental question of, of Bitcoin, right? Like No one owns this. There is not a person who can come in and change the course of this, the trajectory of this entire technology and this entire asset class. Like there is no such individual collectively or individually that exists. Who either directly or could be influenced by somebody, a philanthropic party who comes in and says, I'll give you a billion dollars for more development if you dot, 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 dot. That's and to me, right, that is it's just such a fundamental justice question. Like, how do you bake in perspectives that are important into this kind of a system when there is no, you know, leader, right? Like, this gives us an opportunity as a society to step away from crony capitalism and all the kinds of things that have been really challenging and really embrace, you know, a model. We call it the form stakeholder capitalism. And and I talk a lot about more equitable allocation of risk and reward across the stakeholder set, right? Rather than all the risk being extracted to all the the reward rather being extracted to the shareholders and and all all the risk risk taken by the, exactly, by employees, really is what we're talking about, right? Or customers. So how do you do that more equitably? Well, what we're learning from the governance of the blockchain provides new models. They're not even new, but some of this comes from like, there are all kinds of governance models around the world that we have a particular mm-hmm. one that we're familiar with, but I mean, there are all kinds of more human oriented governance models. And if we could bring some of that into technology and simply into technology that underlies money, how powerful is that? So that's the stuff that I, you know, could talk about for hours that I find endlessly fascinating. And we are so early in that experiment. Just it's very early. Early. On the other hand, there are early wins. You know, it's interesting that you said sort of almost an implied, not direct, but implied conflict if your number one priority is social justice and the person right next to you is, no, 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 it's got to be environmental improvements because the bad guys in both are the same people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, isn't that, isn't that the, the nut of it, right? Like yeah. at the end of the day, you know, we're, we're sort of focusing. And I mean, look, I think that climate justice is economic justice is, yes. is social justice. Yes. all these yes, things yes. are, these systems are so related, you know? And so when you think that when you talk about greenlining or redlining or all the things that have happened that have systematically cut certain groups of people, certain communities of people, or even on an individual level, you know, out of access to what what we're calling generically the rewards of these systems, you know, like you say, whether or not it's literally the same people making those decisions, you know, there's a connection there that cannot be denied, right? And and it's interesting because in my last interview, I spoke with Scott Russell Sanders, who most of his writing He's very much about the natural world and sort of our generation's version of uh, Whitman. And he can go on for pages about walking down the creek, you know, and playing with his kids or teaching them the different flora and fauna. And he was startled to find that a people first initiative might be interested in his theory of place. And what I told him is I don't see them as distinguished. The place where you live is the place where you exist. There should be a symbiosis between the two. 
to the benefit of both. And when it isn't to the benefit of both, it is deleterious to the both. And so there's something about if you do good here, it reflects good here. And it shouldn't matter to people whether you're advocating for social justice and therefore the improvement of the climate in that particular South Bay community, or whether you're focusing on improving the health of the South Bay community, which happens to improve people's lives in it. It's not a competition, I guess I'm saying. It's not a competition. Yeah, I mean, look, there's so much work to be done. And I think some people focus on a more incremental direct change, you know, at a a very micro level. Some people focus on giant systemic change. And and, and there's a debate about which of those is more important, blah, blah, blah. It's all important. Like it is all important. All of this matters, you know, and everyone has a part to play. And and so, you know, I've landed in a place where I focus more on systemic change. I focus more on macro, you know, big picture and macro changes. And I'm trying to think ahead. I'm always trying to, I don't call myself a futurist because I think that has implications that I don't necessarily like, but I try to always be thinking ahead to what's next, like what's coming next. How are we going to integrate technologies like AI and blockchain and, and you know, smart devices and, and mobility you know, systems and all these things? How are they going to be integrated into a society where the meaning of what it means to be a citizen or a person is going to be different? That's already changing. Like, our, like my friend Trisha Wong has this thing she talks about digital personhood, right, which, which is this idea that when you think about you know, who you represent yourself to be online, your online identity is so shaped by the experience that you have, right? So the yes. filter bubbles that you put yourself in, like those are not distinct from who you are as a person, they shape you. So your interactions in the digital world really shape who you are in the material world. And there's a, there's just a constant feedback loop there that we can't pretend doesn't really exist. And we know this, we don't really talk about it and what it means. And what it means is more, the next generation, they're digital native than crypto native, like what does that mean for how they engage with each other, with the world? All these things are just critically important in my mind and things that we we need to be talking about a lot more than we do and understanding a lot better than we do. What's fascinating about that to me is that my fascination since I was 12 was writing fiction. And I remember as a 12-year-old opening a book in a library here in my hometown where I am back now, and realizing for the first time that these stories that I was reading are made things and that I could do that too. And when my first book got published and I took my son down to the bookstore and we found a copy of it, there was like a circle that was complete. But for me, when I would write a particular story, it would take me maybe a month. I would be totally fascinated by the subject matter, most of which was imaginary. And it shaped me. The writing of that story shaped me in much the same way as you were describing our interactions at the digital level. The Mm -hmm. only real difference that I can see is that mine was a very slow, you know, it was shaping. The saturation was by leakage and not by downpour. It took a lot longer for me to notice the effects of a particular character or particular story on my point of view as a father, my point of view as a worker. Whereas now it's almost immediate, not quite, but I don't think people even notice Stuart. I think it's so fast and there's so much of a barrage. I don't think people have the time to process the change. I think it happens without us even realizing it. Oh, I I agree most of the time, but for those that are fascinated by their digital persona and are looking at it, they may find, and they may like that immediacy. 
I'm going to change myself. I'm going to look like this now. It's sort of like changing that crazy cartoon character in what were they called? Second Life? Was that the group that, you know, yeah. you could go in and have yeah, a yeah, build a whole new life? Alive. That's right. I'm, yeah. You know, I'm going to change my avatar. Yeah. And, and you can do that by a whim, but it's going to change how people interact with you, which is going to change who you are over the course of time. Whether those are good or bad changes, I don't think we can determine in real time. I think we have to as, you know, I love the notion of following your curiosity. You're trusting your instincts, not someone else's. And I like it so much better as an instruction set for graduates than follow your passion. Because I'm not sure that follow your passion is a good business principle. First of all, I don't think that people, even successful people, unless they're interacting in a very unhealthy way with you know too much work time and not enough play, I don't think their business should be their passion or that if they are passionate about it, they may not be able to make clear objective business decisions. But following your curiosity is an entire different instruction set, which yeah. it's almost more trusting that if I'm interested in this, I'm going to go there. I'm not going to question, doubt myself. I'm just going to go there and see what I can learn. And you that, know, that's right. That's right. And I think it also, what I love about follow your curiosity, which I should probably like make my tagline at some yeah, point. Yeah, you really should. Uh, yeah, you know, passion is fleeting and is, you know, as, as writers and, and poets have said, right. And as we've all observed in our lives. And when I think about what kind of my passion about, well, at this moment, it might be, you know, uh, I don't know, a piece of music or, you mm -hmm. know, something that I'm not going to go make a living in. Right. Mm -hmm. To me, curiosity, it also causes you to come to a problem or, or a, a space with the proper requisite humility, you know, cause you're, yes. you're framing it as that you're constantly asking questions and it's about your learning. It's about learning and growing. Whereas your passion, I mean, you're starting on a pedestal and it's destined to just fall. It's going to flame. It's going to burn out right at some point. That's just almost inevitable. You can't sustain that level. That's right. Of intensity That's right. I agree. That your time. And it posits that you come at it from a more uh, at the top of the hierarchy rather than probably what's more appropriate. I still think of myself, you know, I'm an expert on these topics and I'm, you know, on the news or whatever. Like, I still think of myself as, as new to this space, right? I'm still learning. I'm learning every day. I'm, I'm changing my views. I'm, I'm growing. And to me, you know, it's what am I curious about? And, you know, this week I'm curious about, well, how are ACA treatments going to be affected? And next week I'm curious about, well, you know, how are we thinking about, about actually uh, NFTs and, and art and the art market and how the art market is going to change around this. And, oh, and interesting. Right. And then next week, I'm like really curious about auction systems and double auction, Dutch auctions and how those could possibly work on crypto. And is that energy consumption really intense there? All, you know, these are just things that I don't know the answer. And so I want to go find out. And so to me, you know, if you're if you're truly engaging with what with your curiosity, it's going to keep you energized. It's going to keep you humble, and it's going to keep you open. And in my mind, those are the things you need to have a successful professional. Well, even if you were looking at it from a purely quantum physics point of view, that as you're you know in that moment before the two atoms hit each other, and we are trying to figure out what will occur, the probabilities are very high in certain directions, but there are millions of them. Mm -hmm. And from them, there is one that turns out to be what happened. Yeah, and the right. more we can imagine an open list of possibilities, the more likely we're able to see ourselves through that raging water, right? And so That's right. curiosity doesn't presume that I know B when I'm leaving A. That's right. I'm open to it being B if that turns out to be what it is, but it could be C and it could be M and it could be That's Z. Right. The other reason I like it is because in most of my 
later career as a consultant, the reason the problem happened for which I was called in to fix can be traced back to hubris of an individual, Mm -hmm. either because their VCs want them to feel like they are king of the road and they start behaving like king of the road and they weren't listening when someone said, oh, look over here, there's a train coming in the opposite direction. I don't see it. So you're wrong until they get You know, yeah, I feel like I should always credit my my high school English teachers, right, for all the, the mythology we had to read and this concept of hubris. It's when I was introduced to it, it was kind of in, in, in early high school and yes. Agamemnon and all the characters yeah, yeah, there, yeah. right, and the lessons that we we can learn from history. And I think you're exactly right. And so, you know, I try to check in with myself a lot when I find, my, if I find myself getting too, you know, big for my britches as, as, as some would, you know, as, as people sometimes use that expression, you know, and say, like, what what don't I know? And who knows that thing? And well, what I think I you gave that? the answer to yourself here. You, you know? just continued to say, am I following my That's curiosity? Right. That's right. As opposed to, happening? I know what's going to happen and I have to yep. get everybody to agree with me. That's not curiosity at work, right? So yep. it's almost as if you already, if you just check back and go, or am I being myself? <laughs> here. It works. You'll, you'll probably self-correct. Like, <laughs> Is this authentic? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Sheila, this has been lovely. I know you have a hard stop at the hour, so I want to give you time to prep. Thank you so much for this. It's been so much fun. Yeah, this was so much fun. Thank you for Good. giving me the chance to kind of pull out of my day and have such oh, a fun conversation. I appreciate oh, it. Anytime. You need to pull out of your day for an hour, you call me. <laughs> Fabulous, Stuart. Well, thanks, thanks very so much. much. We'll have talk a great soon. One. Yep. Bye. We look forward to you joining us next time. And if you found this interesting, please do share the podcast. All the links referenced today are in the show notes. If you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate in connecting directly with John Philpin. Stay safe and stay well.